great God, would you come this morning and meet us, and would you give us a revelation of you? Would you take our weary and dull spirits? Would you take our, our haggard and, and worn souls? Would you take our, our sin-tired bones? And would you renew us with the healing refreshment of your presence? You, Lord God, that's what we need to see and to know. If you come, then, Lord, your presence will do the rest. Holy Spirit, speak this morning in spite of me. Give us a glimpse of you. Speak to my heart and our hearts. We ask it for our profound good and our satisfaction and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. One of the things that I love about the book of Zephaniah is that it's, it's not triumphalistic. It's not this commanding vision of the culture warrior whose hope is only in, in winning at all of the world's contests. It knows that such a vision is too small because such winning still only leaves us worldly. Instead, Zephaniah is, is for the broken, or at the very least, it's for those who are ready to be. It's a vision that rescues souls, that models faith. It's, it's the martyr kind of vision who, through the combination of meekness and obstinacy, clings to a Savior, clings to a Savior that we can know. That's the vision of Zephaniah. It's a vision that, that brings life in any circumstance, in any culture, in any geography, anywhere in the world at any time that the Spirit chooses to use it and give it. It's a vision of a gospel from another world, and yet so profoundly real here in our day. All of this from a tiny little Old Testament minor prophet book. Meekness and obstinacy, powerful combination. That is fortified, I think, by Zephaniah and this book. A sacred call to faithfulness is what we have in this book. And a wonderfully, wonderfully lavish savior to provide all the strength we need when we fall short. Ian DeGuid uh, speaks about broken people and speaks about this message of Zephaniah. He says this, the prophet celebrates an incredible love that stretches down into the sinful world to rescue broken people whose lives are littered with profound and repeated personal failures. It tells of a merciful God who scoops us up into his arms, wiping away our disastrous record of sin and failure and replacing our despair with wild, exultant joy. If that all sounds too good to be true, well, then maybe you're not reading your Old Testament enough. Zephaniah is a prophet to a people whose judgment is certain. But if they will return, then they will persevere through that coming judgment. This cloud of deepest darkness with its certainty of imminent judgment will be dissipated by the breaking rays of a further future brightness whose light sings the sweet song of the coming of the Savior. This morning, Zephaniah chapter 3, we come to the song. I don't know that there is any other higher mountain peaks in all of scripture, maybe. Then Zephaniah 3. Let me set the scene. We left off in verse 8. With a bit of an enigma, Zephaniah has told them to be expectant. Wait, he says. Wait for me, Yahweh says. And then he speaks immediately of scathing judgment. What an enigma to wait. Now, there had been glimpses Profound glimpses, but glimpses only of God's goodness. We've caught sight of God's character and, and his heart throughout the book in, in wistful language, in longing language. How I would, but you, my people, would not, Yahweh has said. But now the clouds break. The future brightness comes flooding in. The Lord speaks first in our 
pickup point this morning of those nations who've long forsaken him, and he calls them by tender names. Here the floodgates begin to burst open as he tells them, I will bring you to a home you've never known. I will bring you to a home you've never known. We're going to look first at verses 9 and 10, but back up with me. I'm going to start my reading in verse 8. Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. Pause there. Notice, we are in the midst of that day, the day of the Lord, that day of both judgment and redemption. And God's subject here, this point in verse 9, is the nations, it's the kingdoms, it's all the earth, I'm quoting from verse 8. And he carries on that same subject matter. And clearly their judgment is due, it is imminent in Verse 8, in fact, God has already addressed his enemies both near and far in chapters 1 and 2. But then, but then there's something more in verse 9. If verse 8 starts, wait for me, and speaks of judgment, verse 9 finishes the reason why and solves the enigma. For, for then I will do these things. There is some hope. There is some, in fact, unbelievable confidence for those who turn their eyes to Yahweh, even in the midst of the flood of judgment, there is profound encouragement. So notice here in verse 9, we're still in the same topic. We have peoples in verse 9 from all over the world. And in verse 10, he speaks of those who are from beyond the rivers of, of Ethiopia or Cush, and they've already been addressed earlier in this book. And what does he say of them? Mine is what he says three times. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, my offerings. These who are the enemies of Israel. From beyond the ends of the earth, those who have spurned him, and he's already laid out what they're guilty of. He says, these in that day, they'll be mine. What is going on here? When he says in verse 9 what he's going to do, purified lips, for then I will give to the peoples purified lips. Probably I think what he's talking about is a new language. It's not just that they won't cuss anymore. What he's doing, in fact, is he's rolling back the clock. He's undoing one of the great curses of all of history. It's a curse found in Genesis chapter 11. And it goes by the label of the Tower of Babel. He says, I'm going to give the peoples a purified language. Oh, goody, in heaven we'll all speak Hebrew, right? No, some of you say no, it'll be Croatian or, you know, fill in the blank of whatever your favorite one is. I have no idea. But he's going to undo what he once did in judgment in that day. Why do I say that? Well, a couple of hints. Because he's speaking of all of the nations and bringing them back together in worship, that's the exact opposite of what happened in Genesis 11. And the phrase that's here in verse 10, my dispersed ones, the scattered ones, that's the exact same language that's used in Genesis 11:4, When the Lord in judgment confounded their language so that they could not come together to accomplish their God-rebelling task, and then he dispersed or scattered them. He's going to undo all that. I want you to notice then the three phrases, tender, unbelievable, shocking phrases that he will speak of these people, not because they will all be saved, not because we believe in universalism, said that already last week, but because it has always been the intention of the Lord from the beginning to save and call out from among every tribe, tongue, and people on the face of the earth, a people to himself. So some from every one of these nations 
they'll be labeled with these labels. First, my worshipers. The idea here, in fact, my marginal note says my suppliants. I'm like, okay, thanks. That really explained a lot because I use that word every day. The Hebrew word that's behind there is one that has, it has the aroma of sweet submission. It has the, the sense there of a people who sense their need. They, they come open-handed, not to bargain, but to say, Lord, you are all in all. Understand, this is the exact opposite of the peoples who have worshipped their own gods, made their own gods, been their own gods. The exact opposite, by the way, of what happened at the Tower of uh, Babel when the people said, let us make a name to ourselves so that we will be somebody on the face of the earth. We will be as gods. No, they will come as suppliants and say, Lord, you are all in all. Will you receive us, my worshipers? And then he says, my dispersed ones, the nations who once were formed by God to worship God and know him, those nations who then rejected him. But do you understand what's behind this? My dispersed ones, how can you be dispersed if you weren't at some point gathered? Well, yes, the nation of Israel is gathered. And in fact, it's a, a bit of a stumbling block for some commentators who wrestle over whether or not it's actually Israel in view here. But I'm sorry, the context is abundantly clear from verse 8, continued in 9, continued in 10. It's not Israel. It's all of the other nations dispersed from where? Once being a people of his creation, now a people of their own creation. But what's the key? They might have forgotten, but he never has. My dispersed ones. Those who I had to send a curse and confound their language so that I would not allow them to see, to succeed at the wrong things. Now I will bring them back. My dispersed ones. And notice what they're going to do when they're regathered. They're going to worship. That all of them, verse 9, may call on the name of the Lord. My translation uses a special small caps way of writing the word Lord, that whenever it writes it that way, you know it's the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God of Israel, the only peoples that knew him by that name. So there's no doubt these are a people having been transformed who have left their gods, and they will call on his name. We're going to call on the Israelite God, and they're going to serve him Shoulder to shoulder. In fact, literally, it's the phrase is they're going to serve him with one shoulder. How oh, that sounds painful. No, but it's, it's a beautiful image. We understand the poetry of it. So unified will they be in that day. My worshipers, my dispersed ones. By the way, the phrase literally in the Hebrew is daughter of the dispersed ones. And the only reason I bother to bring that up is because it doesn't add anything else to this passage to mention that it's daughter of my dispersed ones, except this. One of the, the Lord's favorite terms, especially in the prophets, especially when he's calling people back to himself, one of his special titles for his own people is the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, and I had, a, I had an Old Testament prop who would say, whenever your translation says the daughter of Zion, just go through your Bible right now and edit it. Because what it really means is cross out the word of and take the little d and make it a capital D. Because what it actually means is daughter Zion or daughter Jerusalem, not the daughter of. It's one title. The point is, one of the Lord's favorite titles for his people, a little play on words here, he uses it for the nations who have been his enemies. The daughter, my daughter, of the dispersed ones, he says here. Just another tender phrase that Zephaniah is piling up. And then my offerings. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, they will bring my offerings. Do you understand how, how seismic that is? 
that Yahweh will say, they will bring my offerings. These are a people who, who don't even know, is it a lamb today or is it a ram? Is it a goat or is it a pigeon? Is it a turtle dove? Do I pinch salt? Like, how do I do this? I'm not Jewish. I don't even have the Mosaic law code. I don't know the first thing about what is the law, much less the chances that I do it right. Don't worry, God will provide the sacrifice. And they will bring the offerings and the key is these unclean peoples who don't even know the law, they will now come in that day with acceptable sacrifices. And it will be beautiful. It will be an aroma in his nostrils. The right offering is not only a matter of obedience. The Lord said, do it this way. So I guess, I don't know, let's do it exactly that way. It's not only a matter of obedience, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of saying, the Lord has said, what is the offering? How dare I bring my own sacrifice? No matter, no matter how, how selfless it seems. Now, no matter how humble it seems. You might say, well, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to bring the right offering? Hebrews chapter 7, we who live on this side of the cross... Don't have to worry because the perfect sacrifice, the perfect offering, fully acceptable to the Father has already been given. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 7.26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, that's Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because he did once for that. He, he did this, sorry, did this once for all when he offered up himself. How do I bring the right offering? You can't. He is the right offering. And Zephaniah 3 is a, is a foreshadow of that day. The language here in Zephaniah 3.10 is really speaking of through that sacrifice they will bring my offerings, the Lord says. Pause here, friend. How then do you come to God? Do you come to him and you bring your own offering? Do you say, you know what, God, I'm not doing it that well, but it's okay. I'm going to do it a little bit better. Well, that's good insofar as it goes. Do you come and do you say, you know what, Lord? All right, okay, here's the deal. Let, let, in fact, let me cut a deal. I'll start doing this if you'll help me with that. In fact, if you'll change this first, once that's done, then I'll start doing this. Do you cut deals with God? Or maybe you rationalize and you go, I don't really need to cut deals because it's not that bad. I mean, the Lord knew, knew what I was thinking, and he knew how I felt. So he understands, kind of grades on a curve. And then when it gets a little bit tougher, and you can't rationalize it as easily, maybe you or I are prone to just grasp at some straws and say, yeah, I'm kind of bad, but I'm still good enough. How do you bring an offering? Are you ready to come with sweet submission? Are you ready to come as one who senses his need? As one who says, Lord, my hands are empty. I want to bring your offerings. How could I ever do that unless you provided? Are you ready to say, I'm lost, Lord. Save me. God has provided a sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we will be suffering this, uh, celebrating this week. You might be suffering this week, too as we will be celebrating this week in anticipation, suffered and died in Jerusalem. And it was enough for those who say, I want to bring your offerings, Lord. Friend, you were born to a lineage that had challenged God. You were born to a peoples that, that stood up and, and held up their hand to his face. And committed high treason and said, I can do it myself. You say, well, I wasn't there in Genesis 11. Well, you're from those people. And besides, you're from the lineage of Adam. You were born into a lineage that had cursed God and as a result had been stricken and had been scattered. And you know what? Now, now he calls you home. 
just to a home that you've never known. That's what Zephaniah speaks to these people. And how does he call? What does Yahweh say over all these people? I mentioned it already. One word, mine, in all capitals. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. How does he do that? By uniting all of the peoples on the face of the earth, those who raid other nations and those nations who are raided. Can you imagine Russians and Ukrainians standing in worship together? You better start. Today it's a profound tragedy and there is much to be done. But there will be a day when he will unite in one tongue all of those Hutus and Tutsis, if you remember the, the genocide of the 1990s, or you could go back to Nazi Germany and the Jews, or how many other times in history. And yet they will come together in one purified tongue in a reversal of Babel's dispersion their language, which had once been united, which, which once had been the vehicle for people trying to mount themselves up to heaven and cast the Lord down from his throne. Oh, let's knock him off and take his place. That will one day again be their united strength. But this time, they'll stand with one shoulder and they'll eagerly shout with one voice and they'll be telling of the glories of that one who sits on that throne. Oh, what a sight that's going to be, friends. What a sight that's going to be. This week, I, um, I saw another one of those videos, uh, and I've seen them from time to time, and so have you, of, uh, where someone takes in a stray dog, right? And, uh, and they start by the first time they meet the dog or the first time they bring it home, and at first the dog is terrified of humans. Its head is down. It, uh, it won't keep eye contact. It doesn't come when you try to approach the dog. It tries to run away, if at all possible. It crouches and it cowers. It won't let anybody touch it. It won't let anybody pet it. It'll barely eat. But over time, it starts to trust. In the video that I saw, it started to buddy up to the other dog in the family. Pretty soon, it begins to realize things are okay. It begins to realize that everything it's ever been taught is a lie. It begins to realize that it's actually loved. It begins to play with the other dog. And it starts to forget its old habits and its old fears. By the end, of course, the video all, always ends this way with mom or dad coming home and the dog running, right, with ears flapping and tails wagging to, to, to meet its master and then to sleep in his arms. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. So from however far away you are today, he calls you. He calls you home. It's just to a home that maybe you've never known. Second, the Lord now turns from them, the nations, and he speaks to you, and in context, the you is his people, his beloved nation, Israel. And he speaks to them of the remnant, those who will hear and heed, those who will humble themselves, and in wonderful, godly fear, come and submit and say, Ah, oh, Lord God, we cannot escape, but we can hide. And so to them, the Lord says, I will cleanse you from sin and preserve you. I will cleanse you from sin and preserve you. Pick up verse 11. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud exulting ones and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Do you remember verse 7? You say, 
Verse 7 of what? Just look up a couple of verses. No, I don't remember verse 7. We'll take a look at it. Verse 7, this is the Lord's longing we looked at before. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Zephaniah 3.7 is spoken of his people Israel, not the enemies of God, those who were supposed to be the people of God. And it says here they were eager to corrupt their deeds. But you know what he's going to do in that day here in verse 11? In that day you will feel no shame because of all of your deeds. I want you to notice three cleansings in this little section and then three preservations Three cleansings. First, I just notice the, the cleansing of conscience. You will feel no shame. This is part of what the author of Hebrews tells us that the final sacrifice of Christ could do, could once and for all sprinkle our conscience clean from all of the ways that we've, we've broken his law. Oh, to have a clear conscience. Oh, the sweet, the sweet sleep of the redeemed, right? To put your head down on your pillow and know, blessed is the one whom the Lord does not count his iniquities against him. A cleansing of conscience in that day. Second, a cleansing of heart. A little bit later on in verse 11, for then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones. And you go, good, I'm really glad all those arrogant people are going to be gone. I don't like those people. And you will never again be haughty. If you're a surviving remnant, then there is a work of cleansing in your heart that needs to be done. Either because you know you're haughty, or you think you're not, in which case you prove it. A cleansing of heart, and finally, a cleansing of hands or cleansing of the lips, if you like. In verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. What a sweet cleansing to be a person who actually does the good that I might wish that I could do, who actually speaks the words of life that I might wish that I could speak, who was faithful when called who responded with, yes, Lord, eagerly. And in that day, there will only be joyful, rich obedience with him and much to be done for his glory in that day. Three cleansings here. Now notice three preservations, and they're all there in the last two lines of verse 13. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble in that day. Three preservations. First, he preserves you by nourishing you. He feeds you. He nourishes his own. If you stop eating, eventually you will stop living. But he can continually feeds his own. Second preservation, he gives peace. They will lie down. What do you think of when you think of lying down in peace? Psalm 23, right? The good shepherd who is able to take us skittish folks and preserve our our scattered mind and our scared spirits and allow us to lie down. In that day, it will be shalom in his presence, wholeness, peace. And the last preservation is protection. Last line of 13, with, with no one to make them tremble. You mean, you mean, you mean no more enemies that I got to look over my shoulder? You mean, you mean no second guessing of my, myself? I don't, I don't even thwart and destroy my own efforts to try and follow you? I'm my own worst enemy. You mean the devil who it seems like reads my mail and sometimes delivers tailor-made temptations? None of that, Lord, anymore? Oh, no, he says. And notice the key way that he does it, verse 12. 
I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, but they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Pop quiz, you ready? Okay, you can't leave unless you know the right answer to this today. What does the name Zephaniah mean? Hidden in Yahweh, right? Good job. Four of you passed. No, the rest of you were just too humble and lowly to shout it out. I know. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, but they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. See how Zephaniah continues to play on his beautiful theme, which is the single message of the whole book as he has told it to us over and over again. A people cleansed have their cleansing because they hide in Yahweh. A people preserved are, are nourished and, and put back together so they have restful peace and they are protected insofar as they hide in Yahweh. No different today for us. One day we will fully and finally and forever be hidden in Yahweh, but until that day we must seek it out every day, every week. In him we hide, and he cleanses, and he preserves. If the Lord were to abandon his spirit from me, I would not last out the day. If he took his spirit from me, I wouldn't make it three seconds. He preserves me every moment of every day, and how we need him, right? Remember the hymn writer, I need thee every hour, O oh, gracious Lord. We need him hourly or we won't make it. But we hide in Yahweh. He cleanses. He preserves. In that day, he says, I will cleanse and preserve you. Well, at this point, having turned his attention to his special possession, to his precious people who are the apple of his eye, the floodgates at this point are straining under the weight and they cannot hold. The dam is about to burst. And so he says to them next, I am your champion. I will sing over you. I am your champion. I will sing over you. 14. Shout for joy, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Notice the primary aspect of this passage that is the the singular definition of what makes paradise. You know what it is? It is the presence of the Lord. Verse 15, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Whatever else heaven and our eternal state might be, it is defined to be paradise for one reason above every other, and that is because God's there. Above everything else, who is it? And I, maybe some of you may know the quote that I heard. It's contemporary, contemporary. It's relatively recent. The person who said, if God offered you that you could have all of heaven without his presence, would you take it? If the answer is yes, then there's a chance you may not know him. Because he is the definition of what it will be to have paradise he who is most beautiful, he who is perfect in all of his ways, he who is wholly satisfying, to be with him is to live. His love is better than life, the psalmist says. At his name, the nations treble, tremble and his children rejoice. And who is he in this passage? Look at this wonderful title he's given. Handful of times in the Old Testament, it's here in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Mighty warrior is one of his titles. It's the Hebrew word gibor. Psalm 24, 8 uses this title of Yahweh. Who is the king of glory? 
The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, Gibor. Several other places, but that's one you may be familiar with because of the song. But also of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Isaiah chapter, chapter 9. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Gibor. He is a warrior. That is his name. And he fights because there is a battle to fight. And he fights on your behalf if you are hidden in him, if you are hidden in Christ, and if you are not, dear friend, then he will fight against you. Zephaniah is not unclear about judgment. It is certain. The question is, where will you stand? Under his wrath or under his wings? Notice the progression of this passage. Notice where it starts in verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. It starts with his people who rejoice and they take pleasure in him of all things, not because their circumstances are fixed, but because they are with him. Verse 15, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. That's why they sing. Now, notice how this passage ends, this little section in 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. Oh, there he is with them again. Isn't that a coincidence? Except this time, they're not the ones singing. A victorious warrior, he will exhort, exhort, exult over you with his joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Gibor here is the one singing and he is revealed through three scenes in the middle of verse 17. First, first we see his free-flowing adoration. He will exult over you with joy. This is a, this is a, a, a genuine feeling as he looks upon his own whom he has redeemed, exulting over you with joy. He looks and he feels something you think man that's hard to believe that he would just look upon me and feel a love that's an amazing thing I don't look upon me that way but he will and then after a genuine feeling exulting is not something you fake then there is a gentle contemplation he will be quiet in his love. Some translations say he will quiet you in his love. I think it's 60-40, uh, but uh, from what I've read and as best I can tell, I think this is the better translation. He will be quiet in his love. Imagine the Lord just standing and admiring like, like a parent might do with a child. Just standing and taking joy and not saying a word. A gentle contemplation. It is stunning that the Lord would do that with me and with you. And then finally, all of it comes to full expression. He can't hold it back any longer. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He's going to be the one doing the singing. Oh, Lord God, this is too much. It's. It's too much to believe. It, it, it's too much to even fathom that you would sing over me. Is there anything like this anywhere else in the New Testament? I, I don't know that I know there's anything this glorious, this high, this exalted, this tender, this precious as Zephaniah chapter 3. You know what this says? It says that God genuinely takes pleasure in his people. First, they take pleasure in him, but the final word, after the outpouring of his, his terrible cleansing wrath, after the day of his righteous holiness, there will be tender adoration, and then at the sound of a pin drop, there will be a single voice ring out loud and clear over all, and it will be Yahweh's singing. 
friend, don't you want to join that day? Because there is judgment against you as sure as you are human. We've broken his laws. We have been arrogant. But look at what verse 15 says. He has cleared away your enemies. He's taken away his judgments against you. He can do that in Christ. Don't you want to be there on that day and not miss that opera? There's one soloist you've got to hear. Well, the dam is broken. Are you? Because if this can't break your hard-heartedness or mine, I don't know what can. If it was me and I had written the book of Zephaniah, and aren't you so glad I didn't, I would have ended right there. I'm like, it just doesn't get any better than that, Lord. Let's just stop. Like, we're way ahead, right? We've won six titles. Let's retire now and not come back later. Yahweh doesn't end there. Because we're, we're brought at the end back into a subtle reminder that these words, though absolutely timeless, are given to a peculiar people in a specific place and time. They are a people who are about to experience profound shame. Their God is going to remove his preserving hand to a certain degree. And in fact, he will call Babylon my servants, if you read some of the other prophets, as they come in to bring judgment upon his people who have gone too far astray and have finally refused any other admonition. And so you know how Zephaniah ends to that generation who is going to go through the shame. If they are willing to come and hide, if they are willing to be made lowly and be humble, you know what he's going to speak to them in contrast to their shame? Last words, you will be my honor and my glory. You, my Israelites, you, Judah, and all of those in the crowd in the middle of whom you stand and who surround you, you together will be my honor and my glory. Verse 18. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. You will be my honor and my glory. That's the place he ends because this generation needs to hear that word. As much as they need to know he is going to sing over them one day, they need to know in this day, there is honor, there is glory, you are in my sight, and I will esteem you. One quick thing you need to know to understand this passage um, rightly. Uh, the Hebrew in verse 18 is pretty cryptic. Um, and I'll just summarize it by saying this. Uh, I think the way to understand those who grieve about the appointed feasts um, the right way to understand that word grieve and the whole construction is the Lord is taking to task those people who complain about the appointed feast. Do you get the picture? So he's saying to them um, that, that they have a reproach. They think it a shameful thing, uh, not worth their time to have to go to worship, to have to travel three times a year to the feast in Jerusalem, to make the pilgrimage or whatever other things. It is a heavy burden to be an Israelite, contrary to when God himself gave the law and said, blessed are you amongst all the nations of the earth that have such a law, such a good law as is given to you by your father. They are begrudging worshipers is the right way to understand verse 18. And the point is, at the end, he's going to remove them. Verse 18 says, I will gather. What you need to know is, ironically, the word for gather in Hebrew can also mean remove. You're like, isn't that the exact opposite? Yes. 
but the context determines which it is. So I think that's why my translation has chosen the word grieve because it chose the word gather. But if you use the translation remove, then complain fits perfectly. And so it does with everything else. The point of what's happening in 18 is it's just like he's already said back in verse 11 where he says, I will remove the arrogant from among your midst. So here he says in 18, I will remove the begrudging worshipers. I'll take to task the fakers. I'll, I'll take to task the posers. I'll remove all of the pretenders, he says, in that day. So there will be none in your midst any longer. And then, when I've done that, he says, then I'll reward. I'll reward the helpless and the weak and the needy. 19, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and the outcast. And I will turn their shame into praise and renown. The first picture that came to mind in chewing on that was Mephibosheth. You guys remember Mephibosheth? You're like, oh yeah, we were going to name one of our kids that. Good, that makes me so proud. Remember King David went seeking for one of the descendants of the household of Saul, the enemy king, in a day when typically you just destroy the last king's household so that nobody can stand up and say, no, my throne, not yours. So David, at this point, in his beautiful picture of godly kingliness, pointing us to the beautiful God who redeems his enemies, seeks out someone to whom he might show a blessing for the sake of his covenant with Jonathan. And so they bring in Mephibosheth, him crippled in both legs. And it says that he gives him back all the lands of his father Saul, gives him all of the servants and all of the household to rule over. And by the way, Mephibosheth needs none of it. Why? Because every day, do you remember where he, he goes to get takeout? Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth sits at the king's table. And so it is that the Lord will take the helpless and the weak and the needy the lame and the outcast, and in his day he will take all their shame and turn it into praise and renown. Out of all of the harassment that this generation will face, they will know there is a God who is not ashamed of me. In the midst of their weakness, when they think they have no strength, they say, I am weak, but he is strong. Though they are needy, they say, but I have a savior who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who is rich and lavish in his goodness, who has never had want and who provides all that I truly need. And the thought that one day they would stand before him, the words of the passage, renown and praise repeated twice for us, all honor and glory. Do you know you know what you do with an infant? Well, the first thing you do with an infant is you give her to her mom <laughs> because she's hungry and she needs to nurse. And you do that many, many times in those early months. And that is beautiful. And that is tender. And it's a unique and precious gift as mom stares into her little eyes and brushes her cheek with her hand and talks to her, hums and prays over her. And there is something unique in all creation about that moment, some of the most important moments in the universe. But you're a dad. So when she gets done and she's burped, or maybe you help with the burping, then you get to sit down on the couch. And you put your feet up on the coffee table so your knees are inclined and you can lay that little girl there in your lap where she can stare up fully into your face. And you, you put your hands out like this with your thumbs sticking this way so that she can wrap her hands around your thumbs and you can do this and you know exercise or work her out. And you sit there and you just stare. That's what you do with an infant. 
and your heart just bursts. And then you sing. I think I've sung the same song to every one of our kids. But because I don't want to embarrass the big ones, I'll sing it for Bree. Love that Bria. Love that Bria. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. She's our little baby girl. How we love the Bri Shalom. We love her. We love her. Over and over and over again. You sing that song. And time stands still. And you know what? If you know Christ, and you have a father in heaven, I'll give you one guess what he's going to do one day. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, it is too much for us to take in. That you would hold us in your lap. Let us look you full in the face. Tenderly, you would adore us. Huh, unbelievable. And you would be quiet over us in your love. And then you would sing. Oh, Lord God, we long to hear that voice ring out a loud and clear note one day. We who are yours through Christ, it is too much. Ah, but Lord God, we thank you. Father, this morning, if any don't know what it means to be adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High God and to have a Savior, a Master, a King, and a Father, who will sing over them, then, Lord, we would ask, break their hearts and show them that the sacrifice has been paid if they will but come and be yours. Our gracious God, thank you. All to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.